Welcome to SMT Pod, the premier audio publication of the Society for Music Theory. In this week's episode, Phil Yule sits down with Dwight Andrews to talk about his keynote at the Theorizing African American Music Conference and their experiences in the field of music theory. My name is Philip Ewell, and I am here with Dwight Andrews. And instead of me just giving a brief introduction uh, on this pod, what I'm going to do, since Dwight gave this beautiful uh, keynote address at the Theorizing African American Music Conference back in June in Cleveland, I'm going to go ahead and read my introduction because it has lots of useful information about Dwight Andrews. And then we're going to segue into a a conversation here. So uh, by way of introduction... In his 1993 Yale University Music Theory Doctoral Dissertation, An Analytical Model of Pitch and Rhythm in the Early Music of Igor Stravinsky, a young Dwight Andrews wrote, quote, In addition to the advocates of an axis theory, there are at least two other distinct schools of thought with regard to Stravinsky's pitch organization. One views Russian folk music as the primary source of Stravinsky's melodic and harmonic language. The other focuses on unordered pitch class sets as the basic underlying harmonic structure for Stravinsky's music of this period. The Russian folk music proponents include Richard Taruskin and his many essays on the subject. The latter group would include the influential studies by Alan Fort, Peter Vandentorn, and others interested in the structural organization of the repertoire. My own theoretical model is indebted to both these viewpoints, close quote. Reading that last sentence, my own theoretical model is indebted to both viewpoints, one from Richard Truskin, the other from Alan Fort. I thought to myself, well, now I know why it took Dwight so long to finish that damn Yale dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) I first heard the name Dwight Andrews around 10 years ago when I asked our mutual friend Joe Strauss if he knew of other Black music theorists, aside from Horace Maxwell. Joe immediately said, well, there's Dwight Andrews, since they were classmates at Yale in the 1980s. I was, of course, surprised when Joe told me that there was another Black music theorist who had written on Russian music under Alan Fort 10 years prior to my time at Yale when I did exactly the same thing. But I'm not surprised that it took so long for me and Dwight to connect since it's uh, since it's African-American music that brings us together now. And so often such music has been actively suppressed in the academic study of music in our country. It's been great to get to know Dwight over email and Zoom these past several months, and our conversations are always invigorating. Both he and I spoke of that necessary compartmentalization of our love for Black music as we finished our Yale Music Theory PhDs, and how silly it was that we couldn't just openly love Black music while at Yale. On the faculty of Emory University in Atlanta since 1987, Dwight's a performer, pedagogue, minister, and an extremely well-published author and composer. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees in music from the University of Michigan and continued his studies at Yale, where he received a master of divinity degree in addition to his PhD in music theory. Dwight served as music director for the Broadway productions of August Wilson's Ma Rainey Black Bottom, Joe Turner's Come and Gone, Fences, 
the piano lesson, and seven guitars. He also served as music director for the Broadway revival production of Ma Rainey, starring Charles Dutton and Whoopi Goldberg, and collaborated with director Kenny Leon on the Broadway production of A Raisin in the Sun, starring Sean Combs and Felicia Rashad. Dwight's film credits include PBS Hollywood's The Old Settler, Louis Messiah's documentaries, W.E.B. Du Bois, a biography in Four Voices, as well as Louise Alone Thompson in her own words, Charlene Gilbert's Homecoming, and HBO, HBO's Miss Evers Boys. Dwight has served as a multi-instrumentalist sideman on over 25 jazz and new music albums with various artists, including Anthony Braxton, Anthony Davis, James Newton, Wadada Leo Smith, and Jay Hoggard. He recently appeared as a sideman on Andy Bay's Grammy-nominated American Song and Jerry Allen's The Life of a Song. He is presently working on a study of Black music and race based on his Harvard lectures and a manuscript on spirituality in the works of John Coltrane, Mary Lou Williams, Son Ra, Dave Rubeck, and Albert Haler. Dwight has been the recipient of numerous awards, including a 2005 Lexus Leader of the Arts Award, a Pew Trust TCG Artist Residency Fellowship and Emory University's Distinguished Teacher Award. In 1997, he was named the first Quincy Jones Visiting Professor of African American Music at Harvard University, and he was a guest visiting professor of composition at the Yale School of Music in 2003. He is the recipient of the Riser Theater Fellowship, through which he is creating a chamber opera on W.E.B. Du Bois with filmmaker and MacArthur Fellow Louis Messiah, and is currently a Hutchins Research Fellow at Harvard University. Finally, He's been a consultant on two PBS documentaries on gospel music produced by Henry Louis Gates. Toward the end of his 1993 Yale dissertation, the young Dwight Andrews alluded to his true musical love, African-American music, by referencing Stravinsky's love of the same. Quote, it is no accident that Stravinsky would, for a time, turn to jazz and ragtime as resources for new rhythmic sensibilities. It seems clear also that Stravinsky had already synthesized the harmonic language of early jazz by the time he encountered it in the 19-teens. Thus, it is the gestures and swing of ragtime, rather than its formal organization or harmonic progression, that fascinated the great composer. It is fitting to conclude with Stravinsky's own remarks, unlike many other of his comments. Here he is clear, direct, and compelling. Music exists where there is rhythm, as life exists where there is a pulse. Close quote. Like Stravinsky, Dwight would turn to jazz, ragtime, and other African-American musical art forms for work and for inspiration. I would put to you all, as Stravinsky said about music writ large, that African-American music exists where there is a rhythm and a pulse, not only in the music, but of scholars like Dwight Andrews, who are there to unpack it all for us and for our posterity. Please join me in welcoming Dwight Andrews. And here, of course, thunderous applause. <laughs> Those were my opening comments and introduction to Dwight at the Theorizing African American Music Conference. Dwight, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Phil. It's great to be with you. I'm going to start off. I sent some questions and, and we're just going to have an open conversation based on a few of these questions. So first, I'm going to let you get started uh, by telling us a little bit how you started in music and, and where you got your training. Um. 
Sure, that's that's easy. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan uh, in the 1950s and 60s and was a product of the public school uh, system in Detroit, which was actually very, very good. And like most public school systems, all, all the students had to take kind of compulsory music classes. Everyone had to sing in the choir, whether you could sing or not. Everyone had to take up an instrument by the fourth grade. And I was a part of that kind of generation where we thought it was really important for music and art to be a part of the general education uh, for all students. And so I was a beneficiary of great teachers and a great curriculum and a lot of exposure to many different types of music as a, as a very young person. I started on the clarinet um, and um, kept that all the way through high school. And I was lucky enough to go to a a school for the arts called Cass Technical High School uh, in Detroit, which had actually a music, a vocational music program. And so many of the most talented young uh, students in Detroit studied music at Cass. And we just had a wonderful experience, really a kind of deep dive into uh, music, classical music at, at that time. But it was wonderful because we got a chance to learn all of this repertoire and we had so many different ensembles. And as a freshman, I can remember hearing, I think I mentioned to you some time ago, hearing Dumbarton Oaks being played by high school kids um, and Enigma Variations by the orchestra. I mean, it was just amazing. And so I think it was my, my time at CAST that was really pivotal for me because I heard so much wonderful music uh, in a variety of periods and languages, and uh, that kind of sealed the deal for me. And so that was my early uh, training, and um, I then went to the University of Michigan and majored first in music education, but then uh, I took my master's degree in clarinet uh, because I really was fascinated by repertoire and I really loved performance and practicing. And um, and that was that's how it all happened for me. Hang on. You loved practicing? I, well, <laughs> you know, at, at Michigan, remember at Michigan, everyone was practicing all the time. You were only doing okay. two things. You were practicing or you were rehearsing. And I loved that because you didn't really, you just had to do it. And so I loved the kind of tactile part of it. And it was a very competitive environment. So, I mean, it was, you couldn't not practice uh, because of the, not only the competition, but the sense of, oh, I, I think the sense of, of vitality that all of these young gifted performers had. And so I was, I was taken with that and really inspired by the other students. Excellent. Um, and from there, you went on to uh, a Yale uh, doctoral program, of course, Divinity Studies, too. Tell us a little bit about um, the, the music theory graduate studies at Yale in the 1980s. That must have been very interesting. Well, interesting would be one word. Um, there, are probably, <laughs> there are probably other words that uh, that one could use. Um, but I had um, a very rich and complicated experience at Yale, probably like most graduate students at Yale, uh, you know from your own experience, the, the, the division of music performance studies and composition from the Department of Music uh, in, in my day really complicated your graduate sc school experience. The faculties were quite separate. Uh, there was sometimes some enmity between the uh, School of Music faculty and the musicologists and music theorists. 
And even within the music department, there was some uh, sometimes division between the musicologists who thought they had the sole handle on the music and the music theorists who, of course, had a deeper understanding, as we all know, music theorists do. So, so there was a lot of it was a lot of um, fervent debate going on. And, and many of us graduate students were caught in the middle of it. I loved my time at Yale precisely because it was such a rich environment. I mean, we had great um, um, historians and theorists uh, like David Lewin was there and and, and Al, Alan, of course, Alan Fort and Claude Poliska. I mean, really people who are now kind of a part of the canon of the study uh, now to be replaced by the next generation. But it was a rich time to be there. But at the very same time, Yale provided me an opportunity to be in conversation with fantastic performers uh, at the School of Music and wonderful composers like Jake Druckmann and Martin Bresnik. And so there was just um, just a, a joie de vivre in, 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 at that time. And uh, the other nexus point, Phil, was frankly that African-American studies was just beginning at Yale uh, at that same time in the early 70s. And so I was a, a recipient and a witness to this evolving study of African-American culture, life and history. And to be a part of that and to be both a witness and ultimately to be become a student of African-American culture, that was also pivotal. Uh, because here I was getting a very rigorous music theory training, but for the first time, frankly, I was getting an introduction to African-American culture that I had not had uh, by being a student in these PWI institutions for the bulk of my young adulthood. So mm -hmm. it was a turning point. Mm -hmm. uh, that's excellent. And just so we're all clear, PWI, predominantly white institution, um, that's I, I find that not everybody knows that P, PWI, but everybody I think now knows HBCU, of course. Uh, I have a question here. It's how did you handle your love of uh, Black American musical genres with your music theory training? And that I, I would expand that question a little bit to be how did you handle being a Black person in a white space in the 1980s? I, I could say I could answer the same question, of course, being a Black person in the 1990s uh, at the Yale uh, Department of Music in music theory. Um, but I'm interested uh, from your perspective in the 1980s, 10 years earlier, how was it to be a black person in a white space? And, and how did you handle your 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 love of, of African-American musical genres vis-a-vis uh, -vis the musical training, uh, music theory training you were getting? Well, I think I'm probably not like other um, young people who, um, in a sense, we're we're bilingual, right? We we have music that we listen to at home and um, at night, and it's quite different from some of the music that we study and analyze in the day. Uh, and I think we took that for we took that for granted. I mean, we we didn't necessarily have to study James Brown and funk music uh, in our mm -hmm. theory seminar on rhythm. Uh, so we came with this understanding, a kind of tacit understanding that one could love both. Uh, types of musics, um, but one did not require either to um, to be devoted to the other. So, uh, so in a right. sense, 
um, that was never really a conflict for me because in those days, the idea of, of other black students doing graduate work in musicology, I mean, we were kind of on the frontier uh, and happy to be on the frontier, frankly, because I think within our minds, we had something to contribute, uh, which eventually got supported by my professors at Yale. But at the very same time, I participated in this musical culture that I loved and felt no conflict that I wasn't studying it in my music theory classes, which is one of the dramatic changes uh, within the last few decades, you know, because many students now want to study who they are in their theory classes. Uh, you know, right. they want to know why, why not more black music? Why not hip hop? Why, you know, et cetera. And these are really important and, and, and vital questions, but they also come with very important um, discernment processes. That is, if we want to bring these additional repertoires into our course study of music theory, then we need to figure out what's appropriate. What are the appropriate tools? What are the appropriate questions? And quite frankly, I don't think we've gotten there yet. Uh, we seem to be in this uh, a strange time where our collective guilt about not having acknowledged Black people and culture for 400 years. Now we want to do it, but we want to do it in a way that I hope will not further denigrate the study of the people by taking it for granted. Right, right. Let me press you on that a little bit in terms of the appropriateness or appropriate tools, um, appropriate pathways, if I could, because that's a question, of course, we all ask ourselves. And I wonder what your perspective might be on that. What might be appropriate uh, tools and techniques and music theories to be teaching now in 2020? I know it's a it's a difficult question, but uh, we we all think about it. Yeah, that, that really is a tough question. And I think we every day we go into our teaching with those questions in mind. Uh, and my my ideas are changing, quite frankly, because as a as a theorist in the 1980s and 90s studying, uh, I really uh, had completely taken that. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I wanted to be a theory professor. I wanted to I wanted to be, you know, uh, an Alan Fort in Brown. You know, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. because of uh, because of, I think, um, my admiration for this deep approach to music that I loved, but then had a new appreciation that it could be studied in terms of its architecture and structure and substructures that you know, frankly, as a clarinet player, I never really thought about. So I really uh, became a devotee of, um, of of these other ways of looking at music. But because of that, I completely committed to, at that time, um, the, the, the method and the methodologies and ultimately bringing, um, a, bringing myself into that conversation uh, as a theorist. Um, but now... I think our challenge is slightly different because many students who um, are studying music theory, they're studying it because they uh, it's a requirement for their major. And many of them have quite different musical goals than I might've had, um, you know, uh, decades ago. And so part of the question is studying theory or theorizing to what end? And, and I think that the end of, of, including African-American music, really requires us to ask a different set of questions. Uh, as, as you well know, you and I could dig into a motive in, in a Beethoven piano sonata and discuss it 
all day and then have lunch and come back and rethink the structural right. things and love exactly. it. Um, but um, that is not necessarily the questions of what present music students um, are asking. But for me, the, the primary theorizing of African-American music and teaching it has to begin with an understanding or an acknowledgement that the music has a different function and that the music has a different set of aesthetic and organizational principles that tie back to the culture. So it's not quantifying how many tetrachords of X, Y, and Z are imbricated in a particular scene. Um, that, that misses the point. Um, the question Wait, is- you just said, Dwight, you just said imbricated. Stop swearing, please. <laughs> well, you know, I, I had words on my forehead and in my chest. I mean, I felt like I was wearing tattoos, you know, 4Z15, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, I look back with horror because I really had become a disciple. I mean, there was a there was a part of me that loved excelling, I think, at- yeah that language at that method at that approach and, and it's it's fascinating because i'm thinking i'm thinking of the conflict within a, a black person within blackness right as we're doing this i remember once i had a friend who played with sonny rollins um on the new haven green in the heart of new haven right across the street from the yale music department on on elm street and as i was watching the concert i felt like i was an undercover agent going <laughs> going to see this concert as I was a Yale doctoral student. I'm like, well, I can't let anybody see me here, obviously. <laughs> it was Sonny Rollins. <laughs> I, I know. So, but, but You know but what I'm talking about, right? You feel exactly me. what you're talking about. But I think that's that's part of both the challenge and the opportunity. I frankly didn't feel conflicted about loving all of these repertoires at once. I did feel at certain points and asked myself, why are these other important musics not a part of the conversation? Uh, and right. that's, that's what led me to actually my dissertation. I think I mentioned to you in a sidebar that, you know, when I listened to um, Petrushka or The Rite of Spring uh, or The Soldier's Tale, uh, there was a certain familiarity with that sound that had to do with those tetrachords, those diatonic tetrachords that I think Charlie Parker was interested in. I think that certainly John Coltrane was interested in. I heard it intuitively in the music, but I, I wanted to ask the question, what's the why of that? Why, mm -hmm. you know, in these, in these tonal musics or tonally centered musics. And mm -hmm. so that's what led me originally to my dissertation. I early on understood that I wouldn't be able to ask that question in my dissertation because as, as David Lewin reminded me, it's just a dissertation, you know, you want to live through it. And so I couldn't ask that bigger question, but asking those questions now has been a guiding part of my work to understand what are the common What's the common terrain of some of these musical practices uh, that uh, can help us understand both? And, mm -hmm. and certainly within uh, tone-centered music, there, there are references that we can understand how, how they are shaped and organized. But right. I didn't, yeah, but but I didn't, in a sense, struggle with my identity versus this majority identity of the repertoire, because remember that was the that was the only music I had studied. Right. In other words, I never heard of black composers writing concert clarinet music until I was in graduate school, until I was at Yale. Mm -hmm. 
I knew Florence Price by name, but I knew nothing of her music because that was not a part of my training at Michigan. We studied the, the repertoire. We studied Mozart. We studied Brahms, um, you know, and and I studied, even when I played the Stravinsky three pieces, you know, for clarinet, it never occurred to me that there were other composers writing music in the 20th century who were African-American because that was a part of my miseducation. And mm -hmm. so... Um, as I think I evolved, I began to discover um, that there are African-American composers writing this music. And, um, and that kind of broadened my horizon kind of in reverse. Absolutely. Uh, before we leave Yale, maybe you could talk, uh, you mentioned that you had interaction with Amiri Baraka while you were at Yale, that he, um, you had interesting conversations with him. I'm sure the listeners would love to hear a little bit about uh, Amiri Baraka, if you could. So part of the amazing uh, history of Yale in those days was that the African-American studies program is what it was called, I think, at that time, before it became a department, really made use of uh, many of the brilliant minds and creatives of the day who came and did a professor, a visiting professor stints at Yale. So the, the litany of names was just unbelievable during my time there. But Baraka, Leroy Jones was there for actually a few years as a visiting professor, and his office was right next to mine in African American studies. And so uh, every day there was a debate about something, you know, uh, why did Coltrane abandoned the blues, you know, and I go, what are you talking about? And he would, you know, he had all of these perspectives that he just had a different take on the culture and the music that really was an important part of my education. Uh, it was really Baraka and uh, his, really his own creative juices, but also his perspective of looking at the relationship between music and the people that really changed the whole way I thought about music and culture. So I owe him a great debt. Um, if any of our listeners have not read Blues People, um, I, encourage them to do so because remember Baraka was the one who said the music and the people is the same the music and the people is the same and that fractured way of saying it says everything and so he helps us to understand what happens between slavery and reconstruction or between the great migration and the Harlem Renaissance or the post-Renaissance uh, kind of uh, fissures and fractures. And it was Baraka that really opened me up to uh, not a one-sided way of looking at black culture and music, but the multifaceted aspects of black music and black culture. You know, for example, why, uh, why, have historically black colleges been so slow to accept jazz themselves as a worthy part of a curriculum. And to understand that is to understand kind of black intellectual history and to understand the languages of, of Elaine Locke and Du Bois and others. And, uh, and that was very, very um, instructive. And so that helped to shape my way of thinking post that. And as you know, Baraka pulled no, no punches on, on his own view of Black culture in its, its richness and also in its contradictions. And so, right. um, so that was guiding. That was a guiding matter. We argued about John Coltrane forever. Um, he would always tease me because, you know, he, he knew that I had gone to seminary. And he would always say, you still doing that preaching stuff? <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> but but um, I had a wonderful experience once playing with him, uh, backing him up in one of his poet 
um, poet readings in Brooklyn. And he was still uh, he was still in his kind of post-Marxist phase, you know. So, I mean, he had kind of the Mao cap and, you know, it was mm -hmm. just he was just an interesting figure. There was a he was a one of a kind. And so that was really absolutely. Cool. Yeah, I, and and it pulls no punches. Uh, it I remember reading Jazz in the Avant Garde, I think, and uh, where he was sp speaking about Thelonious Monk, and he was also talking about Franz Liszt, and then he comes to his conclusion, just like, but none of this would take away from the simple fact that Thelonious Monk was a better composer than Franz Liszt, <laughs> <laughs> and you're just kind of like. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but you know, that obviously that's what a white framework has said about white composers over African American composers, well, since time immemorial. So um it's interesting to see it from that perspective. Okay, so we've touched on it on the next couple of questions already. Uh, what what was theorizing African music, theorizing African American music back then, and what is it now? And do you see paths or possibilities for theorizing African American music in mainstream music theory or mainstream music academies? Uh, uh, you did touch on it, but but maybe we can think about the possibilities aspect of. Um, theorizing African-American music in our, our mainstream, which is to say PWI, right? Um, predominantly white institutions, mainstream music theory and music academies. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I have thought a lot about that. Uh, uh, in my day, sounding like an old grandpa, we didn't have theorizing African-American music. Uh, we were theorizing African-American music, but we didn't call it theorizing African-American music. Of course. And so... I think, um, once again, going back to those early days at Yale and the subsequent uh, evolution of, of Black studies, I think we were theorizing Black music even then, uh, but we didn't call it that. Um, the, the instructions were coming from the creatives themselves. And once again, this is why I owe such a great debt to Yale, because it was really in the Yale context, you know, we were studying our, our theory in in the music department, but I was also getting a chance to hear lectures and, and become friends with great writers and thinkers who are, had already evolved a way of thinking about Black culture in which music was a key part. Um, you know, Toni Morrison was at Yale in those days, June Jordan mm. was there, Derek Walcott, Wally Soyenka, these great writers and thinkers. And they had very, very clear, passioned, evolved understandings of Black music and culture. And so they were theorizing in the sense that they were kind of unfolding an understanding of Black music, but it was in a broader cultural uh, context. And so I think that was where the theorizing was going on. And if we look at kind of where we are now in the 21st century, much of the work that that uh, that's kind of contextualizing Black music in a broader framework, the work of Fred Moulton and uh, Trent Gabbard and um, so many others, Brent Edwards. I mean, they're really kind of providing a way of looking at music in a way different, that, but still theorizing um, kind of how these practices come together. Mm -hmm. um, it raises really important and difficult questions, I think, for, say, traditional music departments, which oftentimes want to create an object that can be unpacked, but at the very same time, 
it doesn't necessarily require a certain cultural competence uh, of, of, of how to understand music in, for example, in African-American culture. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, you know, I'm always concerned that when we include pop music, for example, in our theory program, um, that we have a, an aesthetic as well as theoretical way to begin that study. Uh, otherwise, we come up with a really kind of silly and simplistic way of analyzing repetitions and ostinati and call and response and all of these things that we ascribe that really don't deepen our understanding. And so the question is, how do we, in the four years that we have undergraduates, how do you give them, how do you re-educate <laughs> them? Right to the possibilities of what music theory not only was, but what it should be uh, in a way that serves all of the repertoires and all of the different traditions. Right. What it should be and what it can be, yes, right? Be because um, we do still have this massive edifice of music theory as this counterpoint, linear analysis, harmony, you know, voice leading. And, mm -hmm. and then of course we, we get into the 20th century where we talk about pitch glass sets and, 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 and Riemannian ideas. And um, it's that edifice that makes it very difficult, right. To bring in uh cultural and just a, a humanistic side. Um, and that is why I often say that African-American genres are, are kind of stripped of their humanity in, in order to be kind of then presented. And, and Mary Baraka made exactly that point in terms of the appropriation of, of, of such genres. Um, so just a, a couple more questions, um, Dwight. This is a fascinating. Go back, though. You said something very important, though, because I think and you've helped us to understand this, Phil, in so many ways. When we strip down the musical practice from its humanity and kind of once again make it a subject that also has its own profound racial dynamic right that is oh, yeah you can separate the cultural product from the people because the people are secondary to the product for for yep. my for my introspection and that is racist in its very nature right absolutely that's yeah. why we have to, as you say, we have to kind of make sure that we are requiring uh, that that doesn't happen because it will then predict the result of what your analysis in quotation marks uh, gives you. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it was James Baldwin who said something like, ours is a history we must tell over and over and over again. Yes. Because the, you know, the, uh, the, the efforts to simply erase that history are so intense. Right. So, um, yeah, um, so a couple more questions here, Dwight, uh, in your opinion, why are there today virtually, virtually no African-American music theorists in our mainstream music institute institutions today? That's probably one of the, on one level, one of the most obvious, uh, uh questions or answers. Um, uh, but on another level, it's a much more difficult, um, uh, question to answer. I think that there are very few African-American music theorists today, in part because to be in the pipeline of embracing music theory as a subject or an area of study, uh, I think you have to start that pipeline so early on in order to get people interested in that this could be a very interesting vocation. And I think for many people, today, for many young students today, as they look at vocations, for example, um, 
you know, I want to grow up and be a music theorist just doesn't seem to rise to the to the <laughs> level of importance uh, that uh, perhaps a generation or so ago. But also it's because I think that uh, uh, the present generation doesn't see a relevance um, for um, for music theory in, the, in that same way. And also they don't want to necessarily continue to build the to build the structure that keeps not asking important questions. So I think it's for many people, there many African-Americans don't see the relevance of it. They don't see themselves on the faculty. You know how many of us there are. And so right. that means there are a lot of students, music students, brilliant music students who could be theorists, but because they don't see us, that limits their exposure uh, mm -hmm. to us. And until we had that big conference that you uh, so wonderfully produced the last summer, I mean, I think that there were many students who didn't even know we existed. And so, you know, there's ignorance is part of it. Relevance is another part of it. The changing ecology of how we prepare students uh, and, and, and in a sense, unprepare them for music theory careers uh, by the time they get to college is also a part of it. I mean, I had studied a lot of this stuff before I got to, to college. And so this was not foreign to me, but I had a very specific music training that allowed me to become a, you know, a, a graduate student in music theory. Had I not gone to Cass, had I not gone to Michigan, had I not already studied Hindemith elementary, you know, remember the, the workbook, the, the elementary oh, dictation practice, I can't remember the title. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was all a part of my kind of, you know, growing up. That is not the growing up of the average student today. And I think that's, that is in part why we have such a limited number of uh, African-American music uh, theorists. Think about it this way. Uh, you know, Henry Louis Gates has been so successful at building the discipline, but he's also in some ways become the face of the discipline. I mean, people, even if you're not a student, you see Skip on all of these different documentaries that tell us what you thought about Africa is wrong. Here's the way Africa can be taught. Here's how Black religion uh, could be looked at that's engaging. And we see him as the public face. And I think we, you and I and our colleagues have to probably build a, a better social presence among our potential future music theorists or music scholars. And the, mm -hmm. the term theory might be also itself kind of antiquated uh, because it implies all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the, the follow-up question here is what's holding back African-Americans from pursuing music theory as a career? Maybe I can make that even a little bit more pointed. Um, and, and, and what you just said that, you know, there's, there's this kind of antiquated way, or, you know, this is the harmony, linear voice leading counterpoint and those things that, that people still cling to, and they still actually believe, uh, uh, is without question, the most important thing about music theory, right? Rather than just accepting music theory as theorizing music, right? Which can take many, many forms on our planet. Um, so I guess the question would be if there's something holding back African American African Americans from pursuing music theory is is there is there something that specifically might change within our uh, academies as they exist today is there because I, I can I can see what what you're saying to a degree is I think that black we we have what I call bladar right our black radar which uh, kind of just says you know what I don't need to go there that's <laughs> that's not a 
that's a dark alley I don't need to go down, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think music theory, our bla Bladar kind of tells us that's not a place that's going to be very welcoming to, uh, to to ideas that I could put forth. And I wonder, is there something that, um, that, that, that perhaps we could suggest to do to our mainstream academies? Or is there a way to, to, uh, to, to, to be more, to be more effective at integrating uh, African-American musical ideas into our institutions? Of course, there has to be, a, uh, it has to be bilateral, right? A two-way street with, with the power structures as they are. There are, of course, very conservative structures that don't want these things to change. I get that. But is there something else, um, that you could point to from your perspective uh, uh, along these lines? Uh, I think part of the possibility is, um, is the way in which um, music theory, by definition, privileges a certain world and repertoire uh, that for many people is irrelevant to what they think about in terms of music. And so, Part of what we can do within the discipline is we can broaden the set of questions. I mean, you framed uh, not theorizing uh, in that small way, but theorizing music in a hugely global way, which asks a whole different set or additional sets of questions that then begins to chip away at the way in which we privilege certain repertoire, right? That, that this is a great piece of music because it does all of the theoretical things that we say great pieces of music, do, you know, when you, when you start with that, I can guarantee who's going to come, um, who's going to come on top at the end of that race. But is there a different way of asking questions about when we're theorizing music, what are the other sets of questions that should be uh, put on the table, not just for Black music, but for all musics um, that would, in a sense, change the, the way in which we consider what theorizing is. And I think it, part of it, it has to do with the issue of aesthetics and the way right. in which uh, the European uh, formulas for an aesthetic and our concretizing that by this scientific form of music theory, you know, I mean, they kind of mutually reinforce one another. Uh, and it kind of says, this is why this music is in, and this is why this other music is not in, because, you know, when you look at it theoretically, it, it doesn't meet the, the benchmark. Mm -hmm. I, I think that it, it, it invites the, the music theorists and the music departments to just ask, what could we do differently and to what end? And I think that if we, for example, um, took a moment to look at Black music as a, as a possible platform to ask additional questions, which not only would be self-referential, but give us a different way of thinking of, say, music in the, 20th, in the early 20th century. What changes and why? Um, and, and and to what end? Once again, I think this opens up a different set of questions. Um, right. I think theory will always be, until we change the, the big rubric, I think theory as it presently stands, you know, as we quantify, you know, we say how many of these, how many of that, uh, what are the overlaps, what, you know, I, I think, I think we have an opportunity to kind of rethink the questions that we that we asked. Um, I read a paper recently on John Coltrane uh, that does such a detailed analysis of some of his four note partitions in oh, uh, some of the late work. And it's an amazingly detailed quantifying of, of, of train that I think 
understanding the music of John Coltrane is completely irrelevant to the music making that Coltrane did. And, 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 and in a sense, ultimately misses the point uh, of Coltrane's music. And so that's what I'm trying yeah. to get to. Yeah, uh, there's 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 uh, quite a bit of that actually. I, I find in uh, in contemporary music theory, where pop music scholars, jazz music scholars, uh, there's lots of quantifying. There's lots of graphs and 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 little arrows and nodes and networks. And but again, that's part of the stripping of the humanity, right? The taking away of blackness. Um, that is uh, well uh, to quote again Amiri Baraka. That's appropriation, and uh, there's there's it's it's unseemly, um, in, in my opinion. Uh, there are there's a lot better ways to be theorizing African American music than all of the quantifying, all of the um, object objectification, right? That that goes along with that. Um, my name is Phil Yule, and I have been talking with Dwight Anders, professor of music at Emory, who gave an amazing keynote at uh, our Theorizing African-American Music Conference in Cleveland back in June of 2022. Dwight, this was lots of fun. Thank you so much for being uh, with me today. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And once again, to the estimable Dwight Andrews for our conversation today. Thanks also to Kwame Coleman, who did peer review, Jeff Burleson, who played the opening bumper music, Undine Smith-Moore's Before I'd Be a Slave. And thanks to everyone else at SMT Pod, especially Lydia Bangura, Megan Lyons, and Jennifer Beavers. Join us for the next episode of this special Theorizing African-American Music podcast series where I will talk with four participants from the conference, Steph Doctor, Marvin McNeil, Maya Cunningham, and Alan Reese. Have a great day. Visit our website at smt-pod.org for supplemental materials related to this episode and to learn how to submit an episode proposal. Join in on the conversation by tweeting your questions and comments at SMT underscore pod. SMT Pod's theme music was written by Zheng Chen Lu with closing music by David Voss. Thanks for listening. <laughs>